one of the top sites a good tour guide in London will take you to is Westminster Abbey. 900 years of England's history, over 36 kings and queens are buried in there, the good and the great. Coming up, we look at your options for a glorious week in London. There's a lot to explore when you walk around San Francisco and its neighboring cities in the East Bay. Berkeley in particular is is littered with sidewalk stamps. They're one of my favorite little design features of a city. And while the news on the terrifying impacts of climate change has been pretty grim, author Lisa Wells tells us about people she's met who have not given up. They know we're not powerless in making a difference for our planet. You belong here on Earth, and your particular human efforts are needed if we're going to survive this thing. So get out there. Exploring London, the streets where you live, and finding hope for making a better world around us. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. If the world's on fire, then how should we live? That's the question Lisa Wells poses in her new book, Believers. She tells us about the people she met who are making a difference in spite of today's obstacles. That's coming up in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also look at a city that's endured more than its share of hard times with insider tips for a week-long itinerary for London. Let's start the hour looking for some of the less obvious attractions wherever you are. Roman Mars offers examples from his home base in the East Bay cities along San Francisco Bay. The city of Oakland used to have an ad campaign to attract business conventions that said, the only thing we overlook is San Francisco. Oakland, California is a sizable, multicultural city that's long been underappreciated thanks to its more illustrious neighbor. Roman Mars examines how beauty and function combine to make cities more livable, like where he works in Oakland and where he lives in Berkeley, just right next door. He hosts the podcast 99% Invisible, and Roman's written a guide to the hidden world of urban design. It's called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Right now, Roman joins us to help us explore Oakland and the East Bay communities next to San Francisco through his eyes, eyes that know how to find the 99% invisible. Roman, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I'm just fascinated in being a better observer in cities. Uh, anybody who's a tour guide is challenged by helping their travelers look and see with a little more cleverness, a little, a little more insight employ your 99% invisible city eye for your hometown for me. You live in Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, you work in Oakland. Yep. Give me a little tour, walk around Berkeley. What might we see if we're able to find those fine design features that you target in your book and in your work? Well, Berkeley in Oakland, uh, Berkeley in particular, is, is littered with sidewalk stamps. They're one of my favorite little design features of a city. And these are marks made by construction companies that tore up the the sidewalk and laid a new one down. They often put a stamp down to indicate like when it was laid down and, and the company that made it. And I think reading that sort of information layer on the on the surface of the sidewalk is really fascinating. So like an example in, in Berkeley is there was a company for a long time, a construction company called Schnorr. I don't even know if they still exist, but you can see them as evidenced on the on the sidewalks because 
there's a ones dating back to around uh, 1900 say Schnorr, and then the one that says um, later on it's called uh, Schnorr and Sons, and then further later on you'll find stamps that say Schnorr Brothers. You know, presumably it marks this family business in which uh, through the generations, through the generations, where yeah. they add the sons into the business, and then the dad retires and the brothers take over, and and I just this reading that kind of information layer that's really available to you on the streets. Is, a, is, I think, a fun way to examine this. You can read a lot into street names also, you know, that, that, sure. that are just echoes of what used to be there. I mean, it's famous in European towns where this is where the butchers were and this is where the candle yeah. makers were and, and <laughs> exactly. so on. So I suppose that's true even in, in more modern cities. Yeah, for sure. And especially, uh, you know, famous people. And it's interesting to sort of notice where those names come from. You know, they have a lot of issues with this in, in the South because there's lots of stuff commemorating, right. you know, people that we don't really commemorate anymore or shouldn't commemorate anymore because of their racist views. All kinds of stuff that you can oh, read you into know, the city. You can go to, there's a great historical museum in Berlin and there's a whole exhibit on how streets and square names have changed with different regimes over, yeah. over the last 200 years. It's, the city's got, yeah. this street's got five different names depending on who's ruling the country. And there's a lot of politics into that. There's a lot of, you know, there's there's a bridge in, in Lisbon. And when you ask somebody, what's the name of that bridge? You can tell if, if they were in favor of their fascist dictator or not. 20, <laughs> 20 years after that guy's gone, the people still call it by the old name to, to make that point. Uh, when, That's true. When, when you think about Berkeley, you know, your hometown, uh, you're, you're so tuned into this sort of design stuff and the little unappreciated fine points of a city. What does a place like Berkeley get right? And what does a place like Berkeley get so wrong that you almost want to join the city council? <laughs> well, there's a lot of right things. I mean, it's still, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, I, I like it here. I like the people and I, I, I like, you know, restaurants and things like that. I think the things that gets wrong is Berkeley was a real pioneer in uh, restrictive single use zoning so that it made, you know, the downtown of Berkeley is not like the downtown of Oakland. It's not real, a real downtown at all. It's really more of a suburban city. Mm -hmm. And that sort of single family resident zoning has really driven up prices and it's contributed to homelessness and, and made it so that people can't gather around the public transit corridors. And it's, it's, that's something they really screwed up and I hope they fix someday. Because you sure appreciate a town that, I mean, the casual observer doesn't realize it's a matter of zoning, but some towns yeah. seem like a strip mall. And in other towns, they're they're just blessed with a, a beautiful traditional business district where you can park your car and walk around and and feel like it's been here for a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it's not it's not just a blessing. Like it really is. It, it requires an intention. And here they, I, I think they they made the wrong choice way back when. And it might require a, a civic spirit where we all give up a little more than we what we want to in yeah. order for us all to live in an environment that we will we'll be thankful for in the long run. Absolutely. It does require that, that spirit to be sure, but that's, you know, hopefully that spirit is, you know, possible to tap into because, you know, why be in cities if you don't want to be exactly. around people and, exactly. <laughs> and work with them? <laughs> so now you, you work in normal times, you commute over to Oakland and I've sure enjoyed walking around Lake Merritt. Uh, it's just yeah. a beautiful downtown. How does Oakland get it right compared to Berkeley? Well, Oakland has, has greater density downtown and has cool buildings that are fun to look at. Like we're, we're, our office is across the street from the Tribune Tower, which has this beautiful neon lighting around it. That's sort of like a, a beacon in the middle of the city. It has a, a bustling, um, very, very old Chinatown. I think it's older than the San Francisco Chinatown, even though it's not as um, sort of ostentatious and doesn't have the sort of 
touristy chinoiserie in it. It's it's a much more functional uh, Chinatown mm-hmm. that I really love. Old Town Oakland is is great. You know, Oakland is quite is different because it, it's gone through different sort of economic times, and so you know, faltering economies can lead to a certain type of preservation, which later on we would appreciate. You know, um, the stuff is left to its own, and and therefore it can retain, and then it's preserved in different ways, and. You know, Oakland is a, is a real mix. It's a really interesting, vibrant, really great city to work in and be around. Now, that mix is something that you can uh, struggle against, I suppose, or you can embrace and make it a plus. And, and when I go to San Francisco, I feel like the cultural mix of San Francisco has been really celebrated in a way that makes it part of the charm of, of visiting San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of varies. I mean, I've been out here for uh, more than 20 years in, in the Bay Area, and um I would say that the character of San Francisco has changed quite a bit. Like it's a little bit become more monoculture based on the sort of the, the tech, you know, uh, group and, right. and, and, and the money and stuff like that. But what I think is great and what I think Oakland in particular still has in spades, it's just, it has multi-generational people that are there. It has all kinds of different businesses that exist side by side and people just sort of rubbing up against each other in, in, in cool ways. And, and the, you know, I think that's the good part of what a, what a city has to offer. Roman Mars explores the obscure details of how a city comes together in his book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. It's based on what he explores in his podcast, 99% Invisible, and at 99pi.org. So when you think about uh, the focus of your book, The 99% Invisible City, and if you were to go to San Francisco, what would strike you as, like, right in line with what you're looking at as far as that invisible dimensions of a city that need to be better yeah. appreciated? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of things in San Francisco. I mean, there's historical um, uh, cisterns, you know, the water underneath the city that is there as a backup in case it burns down again like it did in 1906. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it has these remnants of past traumas that are there that are, that are there available to see. And then the topography really causes... Um, lots of interesting things to happen. Like um, I love a sidewalk that has stairs on it. Like it's so steep that it requires yeah, yes, stairs. Yes. <laughs> See, you, uh, people wouldn't really recognize that as a plus, but now that you mention that, because that's the way you're you're sort of wired to see things, and topography is what makes a city, it, it emphasizes the character of the city in a certain way. I truly love it. It's it's just something about that. And, and there's lots of secret walks um, and staircases in around the Bay Area that I really love like if 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 i was to do a tour of the bay area it would be around the the secret staircases that go between neighborhoods that were, that were sort of meant to to join housing areas to old train lines which no longer exist but the um, the secret staircases are still there in your book you write about guerrilla bike lanes in san francisco tell us about that yeah i mean for a city that really you know couldn't quite figure out whether it was a public transit city or a car city which is one of the problems of san francisco it left um, bikers in particular like out in the cold in in different ways and and so in the golden gate park people would just um they just painted their own bike lane <laughs> you know, like, so they just took they, it it's like a citizen's arrest or something <laughs> exactly <laughs> they just took it upon themselves to paint their own bike lane and it turns out that the city was like hey this works and so they codified it into a real bike lane and continued it um in different areas and I love that type of guerrilla intervention when it comes guerrilla to guerrilla intervention. And, that yeah, that's that's a whole theme for an essay. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> you write about the the man who was he was in a wheelchair or something, and and him and his buddies broke the the curb down just because 
I can't get my wheelchair off this sidewalk and cross the street. And then all of a sudden, cities all over the world are doing that. And it was because one guy took it into his own hands and he was a, a gorilla in urban design. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just sort of, they attack the, the urban infrastructure and make it as you see fit. And it inspires people. I mean, you know, the the presence of curb cuts required, you know, like tons of activism and tons of work and legislation. But the, as a symbol of it, making those curb cuts in those ways with a, with a sledgehammer and a bag of concrete um, was really important. And it led to people thinking about things differently. And, and I think that that type of engagement yeah. is, um, is worth it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Roman Mars, and his book is The 99% Invisible City. So when we think about the, the lessons in your book and then the, the cities that you live in and work in and call your home, what is something that, that you'd like to encourage civic leaders in the Bay Area, Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, to, to take more seriously? And, and what's one way you would compliment them? Well, I would say that, you know, paying attention to how people use a, a city and be willing to experiment is a, is a good way to move a city forward and recognize that a city is a conversation between planners that, you know, design the city and people who live in it who are sort of changing things from the ground up and make that conversation easy, you know, accessible, allow people to have a say in it and, um, and you'll evolve a better city that's more inclusive and more equitable for everyone. Roman Mars, thanks so much for your insights and best wishes with your work, helping us all better appreciate the cities that we call home. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Some great tour guides from London join us next to take your calls at 877-333-RIC. They'll recommend the top attractions for a week's itinerary when you're in the British capital. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a good reason London is one of the most visited cities on Earth. With a deep history all around you, world-class museums you can visit for free, a lively West End theater scene, and so much nightlife, it's a great place for travelers. But with 9 million residents, the jam-packed tube, as their subway's called, and so much to see and do, London can be overwhelming. Luckily, we've got two top-notch guides from London here, Robert Halkett and Stephen Beck. And they're both Blue Badge guides. They're in our studio to help us plan an ideal week in their city. Robert and Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So, Stephen, you're a blue-badged guide. I know guides are very proud of that. What does the blue badge mean? How do you get it? Uh, The blue badge is a a qualification uh, that was established uh, really after the uh, Second World War. And uh, to become a blue badge guide, you apply, uh, take an exam, and then you study. Uh, The course at present is about 15 months long, I want to say, with lectures and uh, a lot of um, go-sees, so a lot of research trips to museums, to castles, to, to galleries, and learning really how to, to speak and speak to relevant things, to look at things perhaps in, in different ways, and to uh, deliver it in a fairly simple way, which isn't always easy. So so, what's your specialty? What are you sort of most passionate about? I enjoy art architecture, maritime uh, history in London. So you could um, take me to Greenwich, which has Greenwich. art, architecture, and maritime. All three, yes. I just love it. Fabulous. Take me into that incredible building there with that wonderful painting. The Painted Hall. Yeah. Yes, the Painted Hall is is amazing, showing the... They describe it as one of the finest uh, Baroque-painted uh, sort of interiors in Europe, and it's all about the glorification of of a king and a sort of vilification of another king. 
So it's all about thumbs up for William in uh, in England and definite thumbs down for for Louis so, in France. So it's Britain triumphing, yes. England triumphing. Yes. And and Robert Halcott, you're you're from London. You've been a guide for 30 years. Over the last 30 years, how has the city changed for you as a guide? Well, first of all, it's become much busier. Mm-hmm. When I first started working, which was back in 1987, you could do a full day tour of London within eight hours quite easily. Yeah. You could do the Abbey in the morning, the guard change in the morning. Mm-hmm. You could have lunch. You could do the Tower of London, St. Paul's Cathedral. So you could fit everything in. But London, um, like most cities so it's nowadays, just more congested, it's just more congested. Slower there's, to get around. There's more people. There's more traffic. You know, um, when I first came to London, the hop-on, hop-off tours, which I think started in London, mm-hmm. and now they're all over the world, these beautiful double-decker That's buses right. with the open top and a, and a guide with a microphone, it was a great tour. But now you take the hop-on, hop-off bus tour, and you're sitting in traffic a That's lot. the problem now. It's not possible to You just to can't do, do it. And, and, and I've, I've, I've got I've, this love of that, but I, I feel I might be loving something that's no longer there. It's not there because of the traffic yeah. and the congestion. Right. So I've changed my tours. I now do much more walking. I enjoy yeah. the walking tours because you're out of the traffic. I do too. I've you're got the, away. I've, I've got a free app with all these guided walks and you start on Westminster Bridge. Exactly. You walk over, you see Big Ben, you, you see Westminster Abbey, you walk up Whitehall, Trafalgar you can Square, see it all. Yeah. all down the Strand, all the way to St. Paul's And Cathedral. as you're walking, you see all of that traffic just yeah. at a standstill. So that's a tip right there. Walk. 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 It's London's a walking city. And plan, because it's so big. But if you plan smartly, you do it by neighborhood, you can pretty much lace things together by walking. And think twice about going out from the center, because it takes longer than you would imagine to get there and back. So let's talk about, if you have a week in London, and there's three cities, four cities in Europe that I would say really deserve a week. You've got Istanbul, Paris, Rome, in London. To me, there's a lot of great cities, but you can be very busy in London for a week. Uh, Stephen, if you were thinking of London without getting into all the details and thinking about each day, but just in general, what are the five or six important things you got to do when you're in London? For a first-time visitor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think those sort of major three-star attractions, and I suppose that would be the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace, Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, the British Museum, combining also with perhaps a river cruise, and that could be down to Greenwich, so outside time as well as as inside time. I mean, what Robert was alluding to about traffic and how the city has yeah. changed. Uh, figuring you can take out. the boat from Westminster Bridge all the way to Greenwich. Absolutely, you? yes. And does it still come with a, a sort of a, a saucy guided tour from the, from the <laughs> yes, captain. Yes, I just love yes. that. They always say, I'm not paid to do this. And we're going to have no complaints, <laughs> well but I'm just going to jabber on while we cruise. Yes. And I love it. It's yes. a real hoot. Yes. So, some of them are actually pretty good. I, I mean, that makes well, you, you cruise by that one building where they keep all the records and they say, this is where we uh, hatch them, latch them, and dispatch them. Yeah. Somerset House. That's Somerset right. House. Yeah. Deaths and marriages. <laughs> okay, so um, let's see. Robert, Stephen gave us a good list there. Was there anything you would add to that? Um, nowadays, London is great for its food. It okay. wasn't always good for food. That's true. In the old days, you just hoped you to have your fish and just, chips and mushy peas. And that was it. And that was but it. But now we have great markets. It's There's a foodie capital. Spitterfields, Borough Market. So make a point to go to a market. Go to a market. And uh, Covent Garden is very kitschy and touristy. It's too touristy. It's too touristy. And it doesn't really... It's not a market anymore. It's not a market anymore. It's it's an amusement park with with Georgian outfits or something like that. That's right. 
What's the market just over the bridge by the Tower of London Borough? Um, Borough Market. What's which the, what do you is think the of that? Other side of the bridge. It's very busy, but it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's sort of trendy, it's, but it's still real. And I think it's the oldest. Is, yeah. Isn't that right? It's yes. the oldest yes. um, market in London. The Borough Market. And from there, you can walk to some interesting things. You can. There's the um, the old uh, theater for surgery. Mm-hmm. That's right. In, in old, old operating theater. The operating, the old theater. operating theater. The There's, Globe Theater. The Globe Theater is nearby. Uh, it's just a beautiful place to walk. And you've got this. What's the walk along the south side of the Thames called? Oh, the South Bank Walk. The south. All the way up to the South Bank Centre. Just over that direction behind you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about London with Robert Halkett and Stephen Beck. So we were talking about these great sites if you have a week in London. Of course, you've got Westminster Abbey. And Stephen, you mentioned Westminster Abbey, and it really is a chance to celebrate the, the heritage of England. It's, it's filled with tombs and memorials of... Every every famous name almost you remember, and I, I find just walking through Westminster is is an inspiration. Robert, what's your tip for Westminster Abbey? Oh, it's um, it's it's definitely a must see. You have to go into the Abbey. Nine hundred years of England's history. Over thirty six kings and queens are buried in there. The good and the great. Mm. It, it's England's or Britain's history in stone, but it gets very busy. Um, And I would say be there as early as you can. Try to get yourself there early. It opens at 9.30 in the morning. So if you can be there for nine for the doors opening. There's a handful of sites that really do suffer from crowds. That's the, London has become a very fashionable, very trendy The Tower of London is a big obligation. The Tower of London. It's expensive. There's a long line to get in, but they work very hard to make it entertaining. They do. It's like an over-the-top amusement at some incredible cultural fair. And uh, you get the uh, guided tour with the Beefeaters included, and and their characters, these these guys. Uh, You get a look at the crown jewels. What else would you see, Stephen, in the Tower of London? Oh, any number of things. Obviously, you'd you'd visit the rather sad spot of of the execution of three queens of England, Uh um, and you really do reflect on that that history. And the earlier you get, as, as you were mentioning, going early, quieter and you can really soak up that feeling. So go um, there first thing. I think so, yes. Yeah. And um, and even sometimes in, in quieter times in the off-season when it's cold, I find the tower is actually more atmospheric. Atmospheric, yeah. And it's not very difficult to find a dreary, drizzly, grey day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say go early in the morning and make a beeline for the, the crown jewels. Yes, absolutely. That's right. And you can, you can get the tickets for the, um, the opening ceremony. The ceremony of the keys? The ceremony, the ceremony for the keys is in the evening. That's but the they closing all, ceremony. That's yeah. the closing, but they also have an opening ceremony. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, which starts very early. I think it's about 8.30 they start, and you can be the first person in the line for the crown jewels. So you, you go through the trouble of, you have to have a you, reservation You need a reservation. That, and you're one of the elites that get in before you get in it's before. open. Um, one of the omen warders will give yeah. you a talk. And then you see the tower being opened. Worth you watch the ceremony. Yeah. The tower being opened. And as it's opened, he lets you go and you rush up to the, the crown jewels. Because I've done the closing ceremony and okay. it takes a little doing, but you do feel special because you're there with the yeoman warder. It's quiet. They're shutting it down and you get a sense of the majesty and the history of that place. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about London. Our guides are Stephen Beck and Robert Halkett. Our phone number is 877 and Rebecca's on the line from Tampa in Florida. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Hi. So um, I know England pretty well. I've lived there for two years, but I'm about to take eight family members over to show them around, and I want them to have the most British experience possible. So can you guys recommend anywhere for afternoon tea or high tea? 
Oh, that's a good question. First of all, Stephen, what's the difference between afternoon tea and high tea? I can I don't know what. The well, it, it, there's it gets kind of complex. There's afternoon tea, high tea, cream tea. Afternoon tea is, I guess, what we traditionally and what guests coming to the country have that visual of the right. sandwiches, or the scones. With the three-tiered. With the, the three-tiered. Scone or the scone, whichever way you're going to call it. But that sort of, that whole presentation. So where do we go for a good value and a good experience? I would say, I like Fortnum & Mason. It's not the cheapest mm-hmm. uh, places. It's certainly not the most expensive because you can go to Claridge's and the Ritz. It's a little old-fashioned, and I mm-hmm. and I like it. But you can get those afternoon teas. Fortnum and Masons. Is, I think there's a piano music for that. Yes. So it's nice. Yes. Robert? Um, I like the Montague, which is a hotel close to the British Museum. Oh, that's handy. Um, so you can have afternoon tea, and then you can go to the British Museum. The Rebecca? Waldorf also has Waldorf, a nice... Yeah. What's the one named after the car maker? Um, the Wolseley. The Wolseley, yeah. Wolseley. That's a good tea. And in some cases, you can, if you've got eight people, you could probably order four pots of tea and four actual afternoon teas. You could. And you'd have more than enough food and you'd cut your cost by 40%. And there's a lot of food with afternoon tea. Yeah. So I think, Rebecca, if you're on a, on a budget with eight people, you're going to spend a fortune for eight afternoon teas. But yes. you, can, you don't need that much. And if you, I would make a reservation with eight. And you've got to order something for each person. But just order four pots of tea yeah. and share the, the trolleys, okay? Oh, thank you very much. Have a good trip with your gang. Thank you. Our guides from London are Stephen Beck and Robert Halkett. They're with us on Travel with Rick Steves to help us plan an ideal week's visit in their magnificent city. By the way, our conversation was recorded shortly before the pandemic began. Stephen and Robert tell us about the silly names Londoners have given the tall buildings that have been popping up on their skyline in recent years. You can hear about that in an extra to today's interview, and it's at ricksteves.com radio. Tanya's on the line from Brownsburg, Indiana. Tanya, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So I have a two-part question. My daughter, who's almost 16, I've promised to take her on a trip to London before she heads off to college in a few years. So my first question is, when would be the best time of year for us to travel to London? Given her school schedule, we have the option of going for a week in either late March or mid-October or, of course, during the summer. And we'd like to avoid extreme cold or hot temperatures, um, if at all possible, um, as well as huge crowds. And then my second question, I'm curious what specific attractions or tours in London you might recommend for a teenager who would rather not spend long stretches of time in museums or learning about art and history and Hmm. as well with a full week. Should we spend the whole time in London or is there another fairly close destination we should incorporate into this trip as well? Okay, that's a lot of uh, questions. First of all, very quickly about the heat and the crowds, spring or fall or summer. Stephen? Well, I would say uh, March and October are good options. Yeah, just dress properly. Yes, come prepared, absolutely. Because it think. can be hot and brutally crowded in the summer. Life will go easier for you if you just dress for the weather and go in the spring or the fall. Now, Tanya's got a 16-year-old, and she gets bored in museums, but we want to sort of sugarcoat the history and turn her on to all of that great history. What are some fun and accessible ways for a teenager to enjoy the story of London, Robert? There is the Museum of London, which isn't a typical museum. Because it's designed it's, for school it's groups, di- really. It's designed for school groups, and it really brings the city to life in a, in a wonderful way. That's the Museum of London. Museum of London. It's a very nice museum. There's also Madame Tussauds, which is the Waxworks Museum. 
Kids and, love that. And, and I, I find love it's, that. I find it's really crowded and expensive. It, it is. It's, it's the only museum I know that that charges more at peak time. They they treat it like a, I mean it's it's very very aggressive, but people love it. You know what's very good is these uh, London walks. There's a company called London Walks. I was just about London to say walks. London Walks because you can do London Walks that do music and things that a Every, teenager would understand and enjoy. With street art, beachcombing. Yeah, they're music. into music, so that sounds perfect. And, and there's a great market, Camden Market, which is great for teenagers. It has the sort of clothes that teenagers wear, the music that they like to buy. Stephen, the Sloan Museum is a great sort of just dropping in on some aristocrat's eccentric collection of beautiful Yes, art. John Sloan. I mean, it's a really eclectic, right. quirky, eccentric... I mean, I think anybody could enjoy walking through it because it's just different. And that's an underrated site. It's never very crowded. Exactly. John Sloan. Yes. And then the, the British Library is a huge building, but there's one room. There's one beautiful room, the Treasures Room. I mean, the British Library has so much, you know, whether it's a copy of Magna Carta, whether it's Shakespeare's first folios, Beatles lyrics sheets. Uh, I mean, it's just got... Original Alice in Wonderland. Uh, exactly, the, as well. The very first maps, the oldest Bibles. It's amazing. Yes. And for a teenager to see that, to, to see the original Shakespeare, to see all of this literary culture, that's a thrill. Tani, there are so many ways. I enjoyed taking my teenage kids to London. There's lots of ways you can do that, but give it some thought ahead of time. Um, uh, there's a lot of history you can see, actually. there. You, you can go into the underground uh, chambers that uh, Churchill ran, the, the government, to end, end the war in World the War II. Churchill war rooms. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Tani, for your call. Wonderful. You've given me so many great ideas, and I'm excited to get planning our trip to London. I'm excited for you to take your 16-year-old <laughs> daughter to London. I'd say stay in London the whole time. Just settle in. Get a okay. tube Get a tube pass. It's a seven-day tube pass. If you buy that tube pass at Heathrow Airport, you will, for the cost of a taxi to your hotel, you can buy that tube pass. It'll take you to the hotel just as fast. You'll learn how to use the local transit. You've got access to all the buses and all the subway, all the tube, uh, in the center of London for one price, and then it empowers you. And if there's a traffic jam on the streets, you just go down into the tube, and you'll find a traffic jam down there, too. <laughs> no, and you'll get there quicker. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. Have fun. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking London with our Blue Badge guides, Stephen Beck and Robert Halcott. Stephen and Robert, it must be so gratifying to take uh, Americans coming to the, to the old country, to Mother England, and, and being just wowed by London. As guides... What's a moment you enjoy sharing most with your visitors, Stephen? Looking at the Dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, perhaps telling them about its ancient history, why it was built, and how it survived two major fires, and particularly, well, it was built because of one fire, but but surviving 1940 and the fact that most of the buildings surrounding it were rebuilt after the war. The, the, The church survived the drama of it, and they just are in that moment. The strength and the spirit of the English people as they came together to survive those dark days of the Blitz. Absolutely. Robert? For me, it's walking the people into Westminster Abbey. Hmm. There's over 900 years of our history inside that building. You can bring the the whole city to life in that building. There are so many people. There are kings and queens, prime ministers, politicians, statesmen. The good and the bad of England's history is Hmm. inside that building. So for me to walk into Westminster Abbey with a group, to turn round and say, welcome to Westminster Abbey, that's my, my job. And my job 
would be to remind people, don't just go there with no preparation or no extra energy to understand what you're experiencing. Exactly. Do your studying, hire a blue badge guide, take one of the guided tours that are available. They're leaving routinely every half an hour. There's a guided tour. Use the audio guide that uh, might be coming with your ticket or pay a few extra pounds for that. But take the initiative because you're surrounded by history and every corner of that building is an inspiration. It's an incredible place. If you know what you're looking at. Robert Halkett, Stephen Beck, thanks so much for giving us a better appreciation of your amazing hometown. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If the latest news about the intensity of climate change feels overwhelming, our next guest brings us a ray of hope for repairing the earth. Author Lisa Wells reminds us of what we're facing and what we can do. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. What can we do in the face of everything climate change is throwing at us lately? Does it make you frustrated, afraid, hopeless? I gotta say, I'm getting there. After years of chasing solutions, author and poet Lisa Wells realized that the little things we each might try to do really can't catch up to the pace of our planet's deterioration. So she began to view the situation differently. In her book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, Lisa approaches climate change from an angle of acceptance and from a faith in how the planet can recharge itself. It's a discussion on the cycle of regeneration and living in the rubble left behind as we consider new ways to take care of our planet. Lisa joins us now to discuss the journey and the people she met that brought her to this point. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So other books, and there's a lot of books on climate change lately, they blow the whistle and they say, we're running out of time and it's a call to action. And your book is fundamentally different, it seems like. Tell us, first of all, the backstory. You're not a scientist, you're a poet. How did you get to this point? True. So I would say uh, that it is a call to action, but maybe not the kind of call that we're used to hearing, and I'll get into that in a minute. But the backstory is that when I was a teenager, I read a couple of books that convinced me that industrial civilization was unsustainable and um, doomed to collapse. So along with a couple of my closest buddies, we dropped out of school and ran away to a wilderness survival school, hoping to acquire the skills necessary to you know, survive this kind of apocalypse that we imagined was coming. So that was back in 1998. And um, as things progressed, it, it didn't really turn out exactly as we had anticipated this whole um, survivalist venture. (laughs) And uh, we each went our own directions. But um, my experience was essentially that I just, uh, I was lacking a positive construct in which to live. So I had a sense of fear and doom, but I didn't know what else I could possibly do. I didn't have another lifestyle to live into that would not be so destructive. So I turned toward writing and apprenticed myself to art. Ten years later, after I'd graduated from MFA school, I decided to apply these newfound skills and my adult eyes to the problem once again and just see if there was anything new I could learn about it. That was the impetus for the book. Okay, now Lisa, you wrote, one could spend every waking moment of life filling petitions and thrusting picket signs impotently into the sky and possibly postpone the destruction by some negligible measure but one could never stop it. You wrote how you felt powerless and unable to keep anything or anyone you loved alive. When did that sort of 
end of your idealism and this pragmatic assessment of the situation hit you? I would say that the total disillusionment or the kind of, you know, civilization didn't collapse, but I kind of did. And I would say that I was around about 20 years old. So that that was a a five-year period, essentially, of being totally devoted to Hmm. puzzling through the problem. And I don't have such a hopeless view. What year was that, roughly? So that would have been... 2001. So you're really, you've been tuned into this for a long time. Now, I mean, you've got to be kind of clueless not to realize climate change is real. Sure. It's a very different world. Back then, you were a little bit ahead of the curve being that uh, serious about this. You were right up there with Al Gore. Well, everyone who was paying attention, (laughs) everyone who was paying attention was, um, was certainly clued into it. But no, I wouldn't say that the dominant culture was having many conversations about these issues. Or if they were, they were talking sort of piecemeal. So they were talking about, you know, acid rain or uh, threats to the rainforest, holes in the ozone layers. But people weren't speaking in such kind of ecological terms. So we just had a, quite a devastating uh, climate report coming out of the United Nations just, just in August. And uh, it it's, I think, causing a lot of people to realize that this is upon us now. Mm-hmm. Is it your assessment that climate change is inevitable? And is the gist of your book basically, okay, buckle up, we've got to learn to live with this? The gist of my book is that we are not powerless, actually, in reversing some of the most frightening feedback loops that are posing the greatest existential threat right now. But the people that I talk to in the book are sort of average people in the sense that they're not connected to governments or big institutions. They don't really have funding. They're individuals who are trying to devote their lives to repairing damage and regenerating the garden. I mean, that's the metaphor most of them use to describe mm-hmm. the immense abundance and biodiversity that was the norm on this planet until relatively recently. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Wells, and her book is Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. And Lisa's talking about a radical new way to look at climate change and how we humans are going to need or have to deal with it. Lisa's website is lisawellswriter.com. I find myself wishing for some kind of a magical technical (laughs) fix where we can have our polluting cake and and have our beautiful environment also. Some (laughs) like big vacuum cleaner in the sky that can just suck it all up or putting reflective tarps on Greenland to reflect away the heat. Or is there any, have you thought much about these sort of far out technical fixes? Because to me, we are not disciplined enough. We are not ethical enough. We are not honest enough to realize that we all need to give up a little bit so that future generations can enjoy this environment. I don't see that happening because of the nature of the economy and our material uh, situation and how our societies are structured. Do you find yourself dreaming about a technical fix that reckons with the fact that people are going to continue polluting? Yeah, you just hit on three major themes of the book. So one is I would not put my eggs in that basket, but I do think so long as we have the infrastructure to explore those possibilities, I think it's worth doing. I mean, I think if anything, we need a multiplicity of options to explore. Mm -hmm. But in terms of selfishness and that question, I really think this gets at sort of the underlying ideas that we have about ourselves as people, um, as we've absorbed them from the dominant culture. And one of the 
projects of the book is to look at the ways that indigenous people all over the globe from every culture (laughs) related to the land, the stories that they told and the metaphors they used for describing this interrelatedness that produced greater abundance. And what you'll see is it's not a situation where people are just living lightly on the land. They're very actively participating in the cultivation of these gardens, essentially. So one thing I think we have to get at are the metaphors and the stories we tell about ourselves. But the other thing is, I think it's inevitable, this change. And in fact, I think we're already in process of it. This is not a future event. So this transition is coming, whether we like it or not. I was and, almost going to finish your sentence, whether we like it or not. So it's not yeah. a discussion of what, I mean, it's happening. It's happening. And it's happening much faster than uh, I think most people expected. For, for the last decade, I've heard, oh, we've still got a few years if we get our act together. You're saying we've reached our point of no return. As a matter of fact, even if you did clean up your act, there's so much in motion now that it's hard to turn the whole ship of the environment uh, at this point. There's so much inertia and it's so vast. Right. It's, it's going to, the impact is going to be here. And the question is, how do we see ourselves in the in the vaster scheme of things? In some ways, I see ourselves as just kind of a rash on the planet, and it's tragic for us, but the planet doesn't care, and the planet <laughs> will just roll with it. And uh, it's done that before. It'll do it again, and geological time is a lot different than, than human time, and, and we're just um, a bump in the road. Uh, but, of course, we don't see it that way, and we don't want it that way. Is your assessment is that we've passed the point of no return? Well, the first thing I'd get at is, I, I totally appreciate why one would view humanity as a as a rash, given where we find ourselves now. But again, one of the main themes of the book is looking at the fact that really what we're seeing are the results of uh, kind of one culture's takeover of the planet, but that mm. for most of human history, human beings have filled this very specific ecological niche. I've heard some people refer to humans actually as a keystone species that... Hmm. Um, can do more to repair damage and more to uh, create ecological abundance than would happen if things were just left on their own. So again, this is a big paradigmatic shift, like viewing yourself as a beneficial contributor to the environment as opposed to a disease. Um, But in terms of the point of no return, I think if what you're asking, and maybe not you, but the proverbial you, is are we past the point of no return in terms of can we continue indefinitely with this idea of infinite growth, building, expanding cities, expanding the global population, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, I think we're beyond the point of no return. But I think rather than viewing it as something to give up or some kind of sacrifice, if we can shift our thinking to look at this as a great opportunity for people to come together in community and create, I mean, literally in the most Mm -hmm. uh, basic sense, to create abundance together in service of future generations, there's actually um, a lot of joy and pleasure and connectedness that is possible in that kind of scenario. So Lisa, I find a lot of people think of climate change as an inconvenience and we'll have to wear sunscreen or, you know, we'll have to have more air conditioning or we'll have to build our buildings uh, on on stilts like they're doing in in Germany now along the rivers, just Mm. in anticipation of higher water levels. But I think we're vastly underestimating the impact of climate change. Mm. In your practical way of looking at things and in your honest assessment, what sort of actual 
challenges will we be living with in the future as climate change progresses and as we learn to live with it? But but how do you see the future? Mm. Yeah, like anything, I view it as a combination of potential hazards and also opportunities. So in the realm of potential hazards, I think even beyond extreme weather, which is serious, we're really staring down the barrel of a global famine. And that has to do with you know, increases in the population's demand for food and massive decreases in soil fertility. So that we're on a collision course for that. And mm-hmm. in addition to all of these other mass human migrations, there's no, there's no national boundary that can hold back the tide of human suffering that would happen mm. in that event. So, you know, on the opportunity end of the spectrum, I think there's this whole movement called the transition town movement where people are trying to live as if the fossil fuel economy or the electric grid um, are already inaccessible. So they're finding mm. ways to grow their own food, to source their own water. They're creating barter economies within their communities. And this living as if is kind of an exciting uh, framework to approach this problem, Mm -hmm. you know, like, how do we view this as an opportunity? How do I get to know my neighbors again? Lisa Wells is a poet and essayist based in Seattle and the author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. She won the Iowa Poetry Prize with her debut collection called The Fix. She's appearing at a virtual book conference in Little Rock this weekend. Her website is lisawellswriter.com. Lisa tells us more about some of the unlikely people she's met who've made an impact in their own quiet ways at rehabilitating the land. It's in an extra you can hear at ricksteves.com slash radio. Lisa, we just have a couple more minutes, but I'd like you just to mention uh, some of the words, the terms you use in your book just are fascinating to me. Uh, How does regeneration work into the thinking you've been doing? You know, on a global scale, I guess I'll just finish by saying that there's a man named John D. Liu who runs these ecosystem restoration camps. They have 40 camps at present um, all across the globe where they partner with local people who have some degraded land that they want help regenerating. And then campers come from all over. Uh In exchange for their labor and sweat, they learn how to regenerate these degraded landscapes. And everybody wins because the land is restored. They sink water again. You talk about rewilding. Is that related to rewilding? Yeah, rewilding is a complex concept that sort of talks about how we interact with the land and with ourselves and with society. It's sort of a, it's like more of a catch-all, but Essentially, yeah, what we're talking about is undoing these kind of domesticated uh, landscapes, right? Like monocrops, lands that are really degraded from cattle compaction, and helping the land to breathe again. And there are a lot of great examples where, you know, like in Jordan, there's a restoration site where they didn't do much. They just fenced the area off from cattle. And within a couple of years, species that hadn't been seen in a hundred years, like that they Mm -hmm. thought were extinct. These plants came up out of the ground. They were just waiting. Well, we saw a little bit just with the pandemic. All of a sudden, nature kind of springs to life a little bit as our metabolism goes down a bit as as we hunker down through the pandemic. You know, earlier I was just kind of fantasizing about some miracle technical fix, and you said, well, in a way, we can be a keystone species and we can make things happen. And that kind of relates to 
the concept of the climate crucible that you talk about, where you could almost, I like to think of the planet as an organism, and you can almost, it's like, I think you mentioned giving it some kind of acupuncture or something to to make it feel better, and we could be the keystone species that helps make that happen. Tell me just quickly about climate crucible. What does that mean? Right, and so this is an example of uh, some of the work that John D. Liu and others, these folks called the weather makers, are invested in, where you look at strategic places on the planet, uh, a little bit like a spot on the human body, uh, hence the Mm -hmm. acupuncture analogy, that if they were restored, so if you were to bring back the native habitat, it could not only sink carbon and affect the climate locally, but it could have far-reaching effects like across regions. Returning, you know, in the case of the Sinai Peninsula, they think it might be able to return some of the moisture to the West Coast that we've been missing and affect the climate locally where things have, the surface temperature of the sea has heated up to such an extent that the moisture can't even precipitate as rain there anymore. And mm-hmm. instead it goes and dumps over Western Europe. And we've been seeing that I've, too. I've had to grab my, my pretzels and my beer and run for cover so many times. <laughs> I, I mean, literally, it's just you used to sit and relax in the afternoon and now you get this monsoon coming in. Uh, you know, Lisa, I was struck by something you wrote in the afterword. You wrote, one of the many lessons of our moment, whether through pandemic, ecological collapse, or climate-related catastrophe, is that it's time we stop investing our hope and disappointment in saviors and charismatic leaders, in prime ministers and presidents, and start investing in our neighbors and in watersheds. Explain that just a bit. Yeah, and that's not to sidestep the fact that um, you know these big governmental bodies and certainly these major corporations have an outsized impact on the planet. My point is these are also just people and they're fallible and we shouldn't sit on our hands and wait for them to save the day. We should get our hands involved in restoring and connecting with our ecosystems, our watersheds, because we're responsible to them and we're responsible to one another ultimately. So that's sort of the climate change uh, version of uh, think globally, act locally. Absolutely. Lisa Wells, so beautiful to talk to you. I'm so inspired by your book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. Wrap it up with just a little bit of hope, because at first blush, this is this seems so hopeless, but I feel like you're a hopeful person. You're a, you're a poet. You've dedicated a lot of thought and energy this to it, and uh, you do it because you care. How are you hopeful? Thank you. Well, the people in my book make me hopeful, because here are folks who many of them have faced serious adversity in their lives, and they don't have much in the way of resources, but they have found ways to make measurable impacts and inspire those around us. You know, for every one of those frightening scenarios in the IPCC report, there is somebody out on the land who Mm -hmm. is devoting themselves to sowing feedback loops in service of future generations, and they need all the help they can get. So Mm. that's my final message is you belong here on earth and your particular human efforts are needed if we're going to survive this thing. So get out there. That is hopeful. We all make a difference. Lisa Wells, thanks so much, and thanks for writing Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.